So we're with Brett Schilke, who is the Director of Impact at Singularity University. Brett, first of all, welcome to Singapore. It's been a long flight. We were just talking Thank about you. it off air there. You actually made it to Singapore. It's you not easy. Made it here. Yeah. You're coming from which area? You're coming from the East Coast, West Coast? Uh, well, this, this time I was actually coming in from Bangkok, but I started yeah. in San Francisco. Right. Yeah. Okay. So we're going to talk about... I mean, the stories that are involved in your space as well, because you, in your own words, describe yourself as a provocateur. So that's all good off the bat. That's your opening <laughs> statement. Who operates at the intersection of technology, humanity, and storytelling? I've got to ask anybody who opens with that, how did you get into that space? Was that by design or was it Steve Jobs style, like looking back and no, joining the dots? Nothing's ever by design. Um, I, I was actually just sharing with somebody yesterday um, at a different event I was at that I have absolutely no idea really how I ended up here. But when I look backward, I can tell a really great story yeah. about how it all happened. <laughs> is that how it always happens, I, though, right, I guess? Pretty much is. Yeah. Um, but the, the really short version is that when, when I actually finished my, my thesis work, which was it was focused on um, the, the evolution of human psychology through periods of change, hmm. um, I, believe it or not, used that in my first job and i was i was leading a, an, an ngo that was working in siberia in a whole bunch of different areas focused on kind of civil society development and uh, I, I was with that organization for for several years but at the at the end of that time you know we had really shifted our focus you know through so many different things we worked on nuclear security we worked on healthcare, we worked on you know women's rights issues and at the end it was really around education and there was something that i, I realized at that point where you know, we had spent years and years and years working between countries, between uh, you know backgrounds and cultures and governments and everything, and we're able to achieve really incredible things. And we didn't have tons of money and tons of people doing that. Hmm. And what I really realized we were we were doing was telling these incredible stories of what we could actually do together, and that it was these stories that were really mobilizing people. Right, the idea that when we when we think about problems, it gives us space to argue, but when we think about a vision, it gives us space to create. And like I said, at the end of this, we were focused on education and. When I left the organization, I decided to kind of tie those two together and actually say, how can we begin working within the education space to to teach more people how to evolve and thrive through these periods of change by envisioning the futures that we actually want to build together? Mm. And um, you know, eventually that led me here through a few other other you know side side journeys, but eventually yeah. to singularity. Well, it all makes sense looking backwards yeah. in hindsight, as it usually does. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I, I love what you said about the fact that if we think of problems, it really, you know, it closes our mind to possibility. But the stories really open us up. And here we are in Singapore, which interestingly, you know, one of the most successful economies in the world has no real resources to speak of. And yet it's just a story. I mean, even if you think about, you know, the founding fathers like Lee Kuan Yew, who took Singapore out of Malaysia and had this vision of what it could be. And created change and with very little. That's the point. They didn't have access to mineral resources or land. And yet they created this out of nothing. And if you look at a lot of Singapore now, a lot of it's reclaimed land. Beach Road sits halfway in the middle of the city, right? So those abilities to tell stories is really interlocked in leadership as well in, in so many aspects of our life. How are you sort of getting that message across to people? Are people getting it? Like, I mean, I get what you're saying. I'm a storyteller myself. But when people hear storytelling, they think once upon a time. Right. How do you couch it in terms that people understand? You know, what I find interesting is that there, I, I, I've never actually encountered a person who doesn't want to hear a story. 
mm. right? Stories draw you in. Stories make your mind kind of light up, right? I mean, literally and figuratively. If you look at somebody's mind in an MRI when they're told, let me tell you a story, you can actually see parts of their brain light up that, that weren't lit up before, right? We're hardwired for this. Mm. And, and I think that the... The biggest thing, honestly, is that we often think that leadership or change or, or innovation needs to be about finding the facts and the figures and doing the research and the documentation because we've been, we've been led to believe that just by, by the way that our economies and our systems have evolved in the last couple of decades. But I find that when we tell people it can actually be as simple as telling a story, a story informed by these facts and understanding yeah. of trends, it's almost a relief. Like, oh, oh, that's all I have to do, right, is just tell this amazing story. And one of the ways that we try to bring that to life is through a program that we operate. Uh, it's called Sci-Fi DI, and it, it's this sci-fi design intelligence. And what we do is we bring together people from our community along with uh, science fiction comic book writers. And we envision futures that we could create together for 30, 40 years from now and then publish them as graphic novels. Mm. And it's really just as this way to say, like, what if this was the future that we could build together. And the idea is that you can walk back from that then and say, how can I as an individual find my role in this? Maybe I'm a policymaker and I can identify this change that needs to happen, or I'm a, an innovator or a researcher and I can focus my energy in a certain area. And it, I think what it does is helps people be able to see themselves in that story mm. rather than imagine it's something that another person will take care of. So that storyboarding through the comic book, that unlocks a different type of what thought process or access to information or ha what actually happens in the, the the people that actually go through this you know I, I think that one of the biggest things that happens is is really something more uh you know, neurological i guess really like this idea that we are wired to engage in stories mm. when when a person reads a story their natural inclination is to apply it to their own life and and try to derive a lesson from it and they actually say the best storytelling doesn't tell people what that lesson is it lets them arrive at it themselves so by just giving this future, it, and you realize, wow, that's an amazing future. This is an incredible thing. Yeah. You almost feel an obligation to be part of it. Because if you aren't, you're, you're, you're just saying, oh, no, I, I'm, I'm absolving myself of responsibility, yeah. right? Someone else will take care of this. And you're not part of the crowd. You're not part of the group. What is that? Why, why are human <coughs> beings predisposed for that? I mean, this is, this is a whole podcast in itself, but what are the sort of the easy answers that you know that most people don't know? Um, I, I, I'm not equipped to give you the, the actual neurological answer to this, no. um, but I can give you the more humanistic answer. And it's that humans, humans have existed for, for many, 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 many years without access to any of the tools that we have used in the past hundred years, right? Yeah. They've literally all just come into existence and, and we believe they're the best ways to communicate. But we evolved and we grew and we connected and we built societies through stories. This is how humans evolved for, for millennia, right? And, and I think that things that allow us to get back to those really innate roots are the things that will help us drive our societies forward in the future. Yeah. So if you were to take, let's say, a young man from Wisconsin and transplant him into the, the vast expanses of Siberia and Russia, an experience you've had yourself, <laughs> right? To, to what extent, I mean, we're going to talk about the story of that yourself, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but to what extent did story help you connect with people there and their stories? What role did it play in your interaction with people and their understanding of you and vice versa? You know, I think it, it, it starts at the absolute first interaction. When you meet a person who's from 
any different background from yourself. Whether it's that extreme or it's just a person from a different company or a different organization, you always begin by starting to tell your story, right? It's what do you do? How did you get there? The same things we started talking yeah, about absolutely. when I sat down, right? Yeah. And when you find yourself in a new place, uh, whether that's literal or figurative, that's the way that we start to interact is to kind of tell me your story. Tell mm. me what this is about. So I would typically find myself, you know, I did a lot of work with schools there. I'd find myself in a school standing in front of 100 students and they would just want to ask me tons and tons and tons of questions. And I always had a rule that I got to ask just as many back to them so that we could actually have more of a a sharing uh, environment going on. And and I think that's the simple answer to your question is everything starts with that and it helps to build those bridges and helps to find common ground. But when we actually think about how we mobilize communities and bring people together, it's just about, it's honestly just about like standing up and saying you're going to do something. And, and if that thing you are saying is, is, is exciting and tangible and, and a future other, other people believe would be useful, they'll come together and help build it. And yeah. the, the best example I can think of, it's something very small that we did, you know, compared to this work like building chemical weapon deconstruction plants. We, we were at a concert one day. I was there. It was in my hometown in Wisconsin. And a couple of my board members were with me. We were at this amazing jazz concert in one of our art museums. And one of them leaned over and said, we should have a jazz tour through Siberia. And I looked at her and she said, oh no, I can see it in your face. It's going to happen. And nine months later, we had a group of jazz musicians doing a tour through Siberia and built a whole program around community building and future visioning around it. Yeah. Had hundreds and hundreds of people participate because it just seemed so cool and exciting. And it was this future that we knew would be moving and, and unique. So, it can be something as simple as that, right? How do we how do we make an event happen that brings people mm. together? Or it can be, how do we envision this grand future for a city like Singapore? Mm. It's the same thing, just a different scale of application. Do you have to build on existing narratives? So there are, you mean, when they look at Hollywood, there are whatever, the, the number is now seven plot lines, these, these existing narratives. I and mean, you look at Avengers Endgame, for example, mm-hmm. best-selling movie of all time, mm-hmm. yet not the best selling not the best story of all time it's just a story that we understand isn't it maybe it's the same as harry potter or wizard of oz so there are these existing narratives like you you mentioned for example thousands of years of human history where we didn't have technology so we develop these myths and these narratives Mm -hmm. when you tell stories now are they sort of extensions of those or you know do we need to learn and build on those or or are they sort of now not relevant to what we do when we talk about change i I think they're still relevant because the stories connect us to things that we desire right like when you think of something like the hero's journey which is one of Mm. these really common through lines it, it taps into something unique within us because we want to be that hero we want to learn how to overcome things and we want to learn how to achieve these grand visions that we have and, and it's an easy way for us to derive lessons because, frankly, we've all been through something similar. So I, I think that these stories are very important, but I would not say that they're necessary. Mm. I don't believe we need to build on top of them, but we can use them to our benefit when we want to tell a, a story that is, that is more complex. But honestly, when we want to create the future, right, which is frankly what we're here for to, to talk about, how do we build these futures that are better? I, I honestly believe all it takes is one person saying a sentence. And and this is something that really frustrates me today in our world when we look at the divisiveness of politics and the mm. directions that countries are going in. And I just wonder, why can these people not stand up and, and state a future that, that would be better for, for, for everyone? And I, I actually just, just heard this line the other day. This is not mine. 
Uh, but but somebody had said, you know, when Martin Luther King Jr. led the civil rights movement in the United States, he didn't stand up and say, I have a nightmare. Yeah. Right? He stood up and just said, I have a dream. And it was built on this unimpeachable moral basis. And we see the same thing happen over and over with things that have truly transformed the world, like the beginning of um, you know, travel to space and, and things like that. And I think we see the same thing happen when we design the future of our cities or our companies. They can be very simple statements. They don't need to be epic journeys. It's just about putting a goal out there that people want to be part of. So who is it today that inspires you in that space and storytellers? Because if we look oh, around the world oh. of politics, we can only see the other world, the mm-hmm. people who are taking us backwards, maybe? That is a great question that I actually don't have a fantastic answer for. Um, I've, I've seen nobody in the realm of politics. Right. We okay, can so just, let's just we know, politics. set that aside. Okay. Um, <laughs> that, is, that is a disappointment. Right. Um, but, but in I, business or in culture, or who are the people that are telling stories that inspire you? Yeah, I, I think actually something that I'm really excited about right now, and maybe it's a bit of a different twist on your question, but something I'm really excited about is the amount of sort of discussion we're seeing about the future within pop culture. Mm. Um, and I, I think of you know television shows, for example, like, um, like Black Mirror, like Altered Carbon, like these really future-focused shows. And I find that more often than not, they focus on the possible negative futures. They seem maybe a little bit dystopian. But I actually think that what they're doing is helping bring these questions and these narratives into public discourse. And that's something that we've really been lacking. Because one of the limitations, I think, to, to people standing up and making these statements, whether you're a politician or just an everyday person, is awareness of the future. We don't generally talk about the trends that are shaping our world or the possible futures that are out there. They're just not really part of our our discussions at our dinner tables, at our offices, at Mm. our schools. So when we see these these topics and these sort of gnarly, difficult uh, uh, ethical complications or whatever they are come up in popular media, that helps us actually be able to have those conversations so that eventually someone can say, here's the future we want to create. Mm. We kind of know it's not that. We don't want that dystopian future, but it kicks us in the right direction to start thinking about what we actually would want as a replacement. So that that whole domain of sci-fi, mm-hmm. the comic books, mm-hmm. they have a role in really sort of stretching the limitations of what we conceive as possible? Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. I believe that wholeheartedly. You know, I, 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 I tend to go toward, you know, television primarily um, mm. just because I think that's the most broadly consumed. You know, when Westworld came out as an example, that was one of my favorite oh, wow. shows because I was like, yeah. oh, look at this. We're actually starting to talk about humanoid AI, yeah. which is not something we have in our near future, but is a possibility in our more distant future. So why not talk about it now and be able to, to sit and chat about it with your friends as a, as a what if when we feel like we're in a safe space and it really expands the mind? That was the one with the cowboys, wasn't it? Not? It was. I remember indeed, that. Wow. I, I was an AI graduate from 1995. So if you're into <laughs> artificial intelligence, yes. any kind of mention of that <laughs> was like vindication. <laughs> you're very extreme at that point. Now we sort of come full circle. But even back then, it was very philosophical, yeah, artificial oh yeah. intelligence. Oh yeah. Now we sort of move now into the more dystopian debates. We do. Yeah. So I actually have a friend who went into one of the first AI law programs over a decade ago. And this was one of the AI law programs launched on the East Coast in the United States. And uh, I had no awareness of this at the time. And I was like, why are you going into an AI law program? What does this mean? And he said, well, the university started this program because there's a prediction that within 20 years, the Google search algorithm might ask for independence. Uh, like talking about a philosophical wow. basis for I'm a, for I'm an education to take all this program, in right? at the moment. So. What about that future when you go type into Google and Google just says, no, 
wow. what would we do? And that was going to be the entire purpose of his educational program in 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 this universe. And it was a very you know, esteemed, globally recognized university. This yeah. wasn't somebody trying to do something funny. So you're right. There there was this very philosophical only happening in the ivory towers discussion many yeah, many yeah, years yeah, ago yeah. already, yeah. and now it's starting to come into the, more of the the popular space. What is your answer to that question? Oh, of <laughs> interest. So somebody who, who spends a lot of time in the future. Is it a reality? Because, I mean, I, I had to spend a bit of time just soaking that up. I do not know if that's no. a reality. You know, and, and that's actually okay. And, and I think that when, when, we think about, when we think about this question within AI, and this is something that comes up a lot, right? Kind of the, the job that I often have in the work that we do as Singularity University is kind of being the what's next guy, mm. where people get you know, inundated with all this information, and then they're just like, what do I do now? And we start to unpack the implications, and we think about all of the possible futures that could be derived from this. And something we always end up on is, what if AI takes over, right? What if AI mm. does say it's not going to do the job? And, and I, I always answer it with a story to get back to your point. And what I, what I always say is we have something today that is in its infancy, right? It's, it's just starting to grow. It's just starting to show what it can really be, um, just kind of starting to stand on its own two legs. But we really have hopes for where it can go in the future. We hope it's going to be stronger than us. It's going to be more capable than us. It's going to do things we have never dreamed of in ways we've never dreamed of. Hmm. Now, was I talking about AI or was I talking about a human child? Yeah. Right, and we we fear that narrative when it's about AI. Yeah. Yet we procreate every day and don't necessarily have the same discussion. Yeah. So I, I think when we if we can reframe these these fears that we have about the future as opportunities to redesign the fundamentals of our system, then it gives us this totally new space to approach what that future looks like, and we say. Well, for our humans developing, we've built all these systems, educational systems, correctional systems, you name it. Mm. How do we now retool those systems for, for a totally you know, different, uh, different kind of like development line of technology? How do yeah, we apply yeah, yeah. them to this, this other thing? Yeah, so in summary, we had uh, Aubrey de Grey in here as well just mm -hmm. before you. So he, he was also talking about longevity and escape velocity of life expectancy being that once we get to a certain point, then it just all becomes gain. You know, once we mm -hmm. go maybe beyond, I'm paraphrasing 150, then it becomes easy to get to a thousand. Yes. When we have that kind of world, if it happens, when it happens, then what will we be doing? What, how would that change us? You know, I know this is a very philosophical because I know one of the things, the questions you've been asked and one of the things you've been talking about is, you know, can technology make us better humans? Mm -hmm. Will we be happier? Mm -hmm. So I, I have a very philosophical answer back to you for this one. And it's that eventually, right, this is not a five-year, ten-year thing, but eventually I believe that the purpose of humans shifts completely. Where we think about ourselves today in terms of our jobs, right, our careers, these things that give us walls and frames and expectations of who we are and what we do, I think all that goes away. And in the, the middle term, I think we shift that to an understanding of what we as an individual can enable in the world. And when we, it's a tiny change in, in, uh, in, in word choice, mm. but it really changes what it means internally, that as the world changes, I can always enable the same thing, but I can use new tools to do it. I can find new opportunities to do it. And it, it allows us to find purpose through, through that period of change. 
but farther down the line at that this mythical future we have where technology will do everything and we're living forever i i find a very humanistic end to that and i i believe it's that humans are left to feed each other in love hmm. and and I mean that in every depth of that word, that it's to feed our passions, to feed our fears, to feed our emotions, to feed our curiosities. I think that's what we're left for, is to actually be able to connect with each other and and create incredible things. And that my hope, my perhaps naive hope, is that that will be based on, on love, on this much better mm-hmm. connectedness we have to one another because technology has kind of leveled the, the playing field. Brett Schilke, thank you very much for sharing your insights and your vision for the future here today. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, all the best with your travels as well. Looking forward to hearing more from you in the future as well if you do come back to Singapore. And what would be the best way for people to find out about you as well? Um, you can easily just find find online. You can reach me anywhere. You've you got know. your own website. got my own website, yeah. brettschilke.com, yep. LinkedIn, all sorts of things. Fantastic. Thanks a lot, Brett. Beautiful. Thank you. <laughs>